And so, Holy Father, we lift to you hearts that dare to believe in the midst of doubt that choose to believe in the moments that remain. May the risen Christ through his holy word engage our minds and address our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. On this weekend in which we celebrate the resurrection of Christ our Lord, what do you say we talk about death instead? I'll never forget that summer's afternoon when at the invitation of that young wife and mother I stood in the ICU unit with her and her three children. We were gathered around the drape but still breathing form of their father and husband and my friend. A routine open heart surgery, if open heart surgeries can be called routine, had gone awry. A major vessel had been severed and before the surgeons could reattach it, too much blood had been lost. And the brain, deprived of oxygen, had simply shut down. His heart was still beating, his lungs were still breathing, thanks to the mechanical apparatus of a respirator. But the doctors indicated to the family, finally, there, there is no brain activity. And so the family had tearfully and prayerfully made the decision to disconnect the life support system. And they asked me to be there. Hand in hand, we encircled his breathing form. The brave wife and mother led us in the singing of a Christian hymn. She then asked me to pray. And when we were through, <clears throat> a medical attendant stepped through the drawn curtains and upon signal from the wife, walked to the side of the mechanical breather and stooping over, clicked a series of switches. In a moment, the room became deathly still. The mechanical pump was no longer wheezing. And as we stood there in that tearful silence, holding hands with him and with each other, we saw with our own eyes, and I tell you the truth, I saw it myself. We saw death enter the warm body of that husband that beloved husband and father. Every second on this planet, two more human beings succumb to death. Every second of every single day and every single night, death steals two more victims. Just as death did that afternoon behind the ICU curtain, just as death did on that springtime afternoon atop that awful and bloody cross. You see, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where, where you die. When death approaches you, whether you die today in Jerusalem, as some may, or in New York City, or in Afghanistan, or in Berrien Springs, when death approaches you, what happens to you when you die is universally predictable. What I saw transpire in that ICU unit, John, with meticulous detail, describes in the Gospel of St. John, our preaching portion today. 
like to invite you please to open your Bible to the Gospel of St. John chapter 19. And while you're finding it, I want to say to those of you who are watching on television, we're going to have a, a study guide in just a moment that we will quietly fill as we move through this, this Gospel. If you go to our website right now, www.pmchurch.org, you see it on the screen there. You'll find the study guide ready for you. The rest of us have it here in our worship bulletin, our Easter bulletin today. And so will you take that study guide out? We're finding the Gospel of St. John, chapter 19. I'm in the New Living Translation. It seemed that living would be the appropriate translation to use on this day in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 19. Let's pick it up right there in verse 28. Jesus knew that everything was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. This is not a casual little across the dinner table. Would you pass me something to drink? His tongue swollen twice its size. His lips bruised and pummeled by the fist cuffs. His mouth is dry as the Arabian sands. He is desperate. For a final drop of water that he might speak one last time. I am thirsty. He asks humbly. Verse 29, and a jar, jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What happens to a person when he dies? Get it clear. John has it. Number one, the muscles stop contracting. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're going to die. It will happen the same to you. The head can no longer in this triumphant shout be held erect any longer. The head topples onto a pulseless breast. Number one, the muscles stop contracting. Number two, the body stops breathing. Now there when it says he gave up his spirit, it actually reads in the Greek, he, he gave up his pneuma. We, we would transliterate it P-N-E-U-M-A. From whence comes our word pneumonia, which is a disease of the breathing apparatus of the human being. Now pneuma can be translated breath, it can be translated wind, it can be translated spirit. He quit breathing. That's what happened. But John is not through chronicling the process and approach of death. He continues here in verse 31. The Jewish leaders didn't want the victims hanging there, on, there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath at that because it was the Passover, i.e. today. All right? So, they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. As a kid, I used to think, well, that's because they're going to take the bodies off the cross and they don't want them running away, so they break the legs. Wrong. There are only two appendages that are working anymore. Those two appendages are keeping the barbarically executed prisoner alive. He is thrusting his weight upon those appendages his legs, and if the legs are broken, the pain will be so excruciating, he can no longer raise up to breathe, and he will literally choke to death. He will asphyxiate. And so, at that request, 
Where is this? Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. So they didn't break his legs. Verse 34. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and blood and water flowed out. What happens to a person when he dies? Number three, the heart stops beating. You see, the pericardial sac around Jesus of Nazareth's heart has burst open. The fluid along with the blood is a telltale sign. There is no heart motion now. The heart, number three, the, the, the heart stops beating. And number four, the brain stops functioning. There is not even an autonomic reflexive uh, jerk. There is no pain. He is dead. He is dead. And every second while we sit here, it will happen to two more human beings. Every second, two more will experience what Christ experienced on Calvary's center cross. Two secret friends of his extricate his body from the cross late that Friday afternoon. Let's pick it up. It's verse 40. And together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth with the spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation before the Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. He is dead. He is buried just like billions of humans who have died and been buried for thousands of years upon this solitary planet. But get this. Hold on now. In 36 hours or, or a tad more, because you see, 36 hours is the amount of time in the white space between the ending of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. In a little over 36 hours inside that same sealed sepulcher, even though no human eyewitnesses are present in that dark, dank tomb on that chilly Sunday pre-dawn, nobody is there. Now, it's true. You're right. There would end up being over 500 eyewitnesses who would publicly testify that they personally saw this same Jesus subsequently alive after his death. Their witness has been chronicled. But in... The dark grave, no human eyewitness is present. And yet, without an eyewitness, do you know what? We now know what took place in that tomb just before dawn. The process of death, apparently by some external command, get this, the process of death was dramatically, profoundly, and irrevocably reversed. For the corpse inside the garden tomb that Sunday pre-dawn moment, the process of death is now reversed. So that, number one, the brain starts functioning. Number two, the heart starts beating. Number three, the body starts breathing. Number four, the muscles start contracting and the corpse in the garden tomb sits up, unwraps the burial shroud that has bound him, and he comes striding forth with the tread of an eternal conqueror. Never forget it, ladies and gentlemen, today. Easter is the glorious celebration of death's ultimate reversal. That's what Easter is all about. In fact, let me now show it to you on film. You see, John, the writer of this gospel, Knowing 
knowing how skeptical you and I are, and how we would be skeptical, any reversal of death uncorroborated by eyewitnesses, John has actually gone to great lengths already to relate an earlier reversal of death in vivid, tale, vivid detail rather, that was personally witnessed by an unnumbered crowd of eyewitnesses. CBS Television produced a few months ago a miniseries on the life of Jesus simply entitled Jesus. For me, I must tell you, the most moving scene in the entire reenactment of Christ's life was not the Passion Weekend, as moving as that was, but rather for me, it was the resurrection of Lazarus, which is exclusively reported in the Gospel of St. John. And so what I'd like you to do is to pretend that you're watching this at home with me on television because I don't have cable and I don't have a dish and this came with a little uh, antenna and so it kind of looks like an antenna. But as we watch this together for the next few seconds, let's imagine that we are actually there, personal eyewitnesses to this reversal of death. Let's, let's watch it together. Lazarus has died. So you may believe. You, take the stone away. Jesus, it has been four days. Take the stone away. Unbind 
doesn't that just make you want to sit down and cry? I tell you, it, so dramatic and yet clearly. They have remarkably, faithfully stuck close to the John account of that unforget. How could, how could you ever forget when you saw death reversed in front of your own eyes? John makes it very clear. In fact, if you want to go back to a John 11 here, he makes it very clear that this was not a little in the corner moment. It was witnessed. Well, notice how John helps us know how many witnessed it. Let's just pick it up in case you're wondering, well, the veracity of this in comparison with the gospel account. Verse 41, so they rolled the stone aside as it was done dramatically there. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people, all these eyewitnesses who are standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him, let him go. But then read on, verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together to discuss the situation. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man has certainly performed many miraculous signs. If we leave him alone, the whole nation will follow him. There is no question clearly. There was a crowd of eyewitnesses to this dramatic reversal of death we call a resurrection. And you think about it, no doubt, I, I am just assuming that these who were eyewitnesses to Lazarus' resurrection had less difficulty, perhaps little difficulty, when the word circulated, the reports, that the resurrector of Lazarus himself has been resurrected. If I had seen Lazarus resurrected, I would pretty quickly conclude, I'll bet you it's true that his resurrector himself has been resurrected. <laughs> what happens to a person when she dies? Hey, listen, forget all the physiological degenerations of the bodily systems. Because Jesus, just before resurrecting Lazarus, Jesus gave the most profound definition of death you will find anywhere in literature. And I want you to read it for yourself. Right here in John 11. Let's go back to uh, the, the top of the chapter and pick up a verse or two. This is verse 3. So the two sisters, beautifully done there on the screen for us, Mary and Martha. So the two sisters, well, this is before, days before, they sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one you love is very sick. You know, I cannot, I cannot let this moment slip by without being reminded and reminding you as well that people God loves get cancer. People God loves get killed in car accidents. Because something tragic has happened to you or a loved one of yours is no indication that God... He must be frowning on our home. He must be frowning on my marriage. He must be frowning on my life. Never. The one you love. The record is clear. Lazarus is loved by Jesus. The one you love is sick. People loved by God get sick and do not get saved. They die. Just like Lazarus. Just like Jesus. Now drop down to verse... Jesus gets the word that his very close friend Lazarus is sick. Very strange. 
Notice verse 6. Jesus stayed where he was for the next two days and did not go to them. Finally, verse 7. After two days, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Then he said to them, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will now go and wake him up. I love this. Verse 12. The disciples said, Lord, if he is sleeping, that means he's getting better. He needs his rest. Let's just let him sleep. (laughs) And then you see verse 13. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was having a good night's rest, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. Then verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there because this will give you another opportunity to believe in me. Come, let's go see him. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The most profound definition of death you will find anywhere in all of literature. Death is a sleep. And there it is also. Cheerful, Winsome, buoyant, attractive, contagious reason number six for my faith as an Adventist Christian. Jesus said it. Death is a sleep. Wow. Jesus said it. By the way, that also means, therefore, that when you die, you don't go to heaven. And you don't go to hell. You go to sleep when you die. Jesus himself said as much on Easter Sunday morning. You remember the story? John records that very tender moment. St. Mary there. When Mary came early that morning, Sunday, to anoint the body of her beloved Lord. Now, remember, Mary is the sister of Lazarus. Mary is the one who broke the alabaster box of perfume over Jesus' feet just days before his own death and burial. This same Mary comes early. The tomb is empty. She can't find him and she weeps in consternation. When you remember, there's a voice behind her. She thinks it's the gardener of that springtime garden tending these dew-laden blossoms and she calls out in sobs to him, Oh, sir, if you have taken his body away, just tell me, I'll take his... I, I, I will tend to him. Don't you worry about it. Where is he? I tell you, it's one of the teary and most shining moments of all of Scripture. I mean, you think about it. This freshly resurrected Christ who could surely have found something more important in this universe to be doing right now chooses as his first act upon returning to life to seek out the sobbing form of a heartbroken, fallen, forgiven woman friend of his. Wow, what a Jesus. What a Jesus. John picks up that, that, that moment now. I wish you'd turn to John 20. It's right here. John 20, verse 16. Jesus calls her name. Mary. Mary. And she turned toward him and exclaimed, Teacher! Don't, don't. Verse 17, don't cling to me, Jesus said. For I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary, I just resurrected. I was just resurrected. I haven't even gone to see my Father yet, but I wanted to first see you and dry your your tears. Mary, it's me. Which, by the way, 
explains the seeming contradiction between two words Jesus spoke that Passion Weekend. You remember when he's dying on the cross? You remember Christ's words to the, to the repentant thief, Luke 23, 41? You remember when he says to the thief, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But wait a minute, something is, what is wrong with this picture? Jesus has just told Mary after his resurrection, I have not yet been to paradise and the Father, I haven't been there yet. So he couldn't have gone there on Friday like it sounds, he is telling the thief. But then the original Greek translation, it had no punctuation at all, which means that if Jesus was telling the truth about Lazarus, that death is asleep, and if Jesus was telling the truth to Mary that he hasn't been to the Father in paradise yet, then that means his promise to the dying thief really went like this. Take a look at the screen. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. My man, he says to the dying crook, I promise you today, you will one day live again with me. With me. Death is asleep. Which means that when you die, you don't go to heaven and you don't go to hell. You just go to sleep. I want to ask you something. Just think logically with me for a moment. What could be more satisfying... What could be more psychologically soothing and emotionally reassuring than to discover that death is most accurately defined and described as a sleep? The calm, unperturbed, undisturbed repose of sleep. Now, I've got to tell you that my, my life as a pastor brings me home many evenings, late in the evening. And so it's been my ritual through the years with our two kids, Kirk and Kristen, been my ritual to tiptoe into my children's rooms for one last goodnight kiss from Papa. In fact, just this week, I turned on the hall light and I cracked Kristen's door open. Sixteen years old. Hallelujah, she hasn't commanded a stop to this ritual yet. I opened the door just a crack and the orange slice of light from the hallway fell on her slumbering and peaceful face. Not a worry in the world to fret her pretty brow. Not a smile or a tear on her rosy cheek. Just the glorious portrait of my little girl, peacefully at rest. I quietly stepped to her bedside, making sure I didn't step on the dog, which would surely have awakened all the dead. <laughs> And I leaned over to kiss that cheek. And when I did, I knew that for her in the dark of night, there was the sleep of peace. And that, Jesus says quietly to us today, is the shining, calming truth about death. When you die, you don't go to heaven and you don't go to hell, you simply go to sleep. No matter who you are, no matter how you've lived, no matter how you died, you go to sleep. Contagious reason number six for my faith as an Adventist Christian.
I tell you, my friends, it is the most profoundly satisfying truth about death ever taught. And you know what? Jesus himself is the one who taught it. Death is a sleep. I know there are some of you here who have lost a precious child. And I need you to hear once again the voice of your master and friend whispering to you, My, my child, trouble not your heart. Your child is asleep in me. I know there are some here who have lost lovers, who have lost a husband, who have lost a wife to death. Same Jesus. My, my child, your spouse sleeps in me. Maybe you've lost the dearest friend in all the world to you. A parent. The same Jesus. Oh, my friend. Your loved one this Easter weekend is sleeping. Yeah, I, 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 I am repeating myself here, but I must tell you that I find the Bible teaching about death as a sleep to be the most psychologically satisfying, the most philosophically logical, and the most emotionally reassuring teaching about death that there is anywhere on this planet today. For what comfort is it? To imagine that our deceased loved ones are either suffering in hell for the fractured lives they lived or are suffering in heaven over the fractured lives we are now living. I mean, if they're in heaven, they know what's happening here. And if they're in hell, we know what's happening there. Right? So what kind of gift from God is that? What comfort could there be in such a philosophy. And by the way, that's all it is. It is a philosophy concocted by the ancient Greek philosophers. A philosophy called dualism. This concept of an immortal soul. Do you know what? That philosophy nowhere is embraced in the ancient Greek or Hebrew scriptures. In fact, the word soul. Over 1,700 times that word appears in, in the Holy Bible. And not once, in the over 1,700 times, not once is the adjective immortal ever attached to soul. In fact, 1 Timothy 6.16 is utterly clear. God alone has immortality. Which means, you know what it means? We're all His children here. We, as His human children, live with the borrowed spark the gift of that breath of life directly from God to us. You are alive today because God chooses you to stay living. Don't you ever go kicking in on yourself and saying, I shouldn't be alive. You are alive no matter what is happening to your life right now because the God of the universe says, keep that boy alive. Keep that girl living. I need her. Don't you ever change God's plans. You just say, yes, sir. I'll keep living. You're alive by spark. I've I got to tell you this, I enjoyed a very stimulating discussion this last week in my office from four bright biology majors here at Andrews University, four young scientists-to-be, dentists, medicine, medicine, and uh, medical research. They were doing this for a class assignment, and so they wanted to talk with me about creation versus evolution. Near the end of our hour-and-a-half conversation together, one of them asked me that if my faith in a creator and creation would be shattered were scientists today to somehow out of scraps and nothing be able to create life. Well, I, I thought about it for a moment. I said, well, you know some fellows, I, I, I don't think they would destroy my faith. In fact, let me put it to you this way. 
Let me go back to those same scientists. I wonder if those Darwinist scientists, or maybe we call them evolutionary scientists, those are the scientists who refuse to, to allow the prefix super to ever be attached to the word natural. If we went back to those same scientists, what would happen if I brought to them a body that has been ten days old, dead? Ten days in the grave. Now, is that too long? Okay, I'll bring them a body that has been in the grave three days. Oh, two days? One day? How about if I have a body, a body of a little child, just one hour dead, and I bring that body, how many, how many thousand years until those same scientists will be able to bring out of that body not just some kind of movement and stirring, but they will be able to bring back that intelligent, charming, living, loving personality, the identical person and personality of the deceased. How many years until evolution finds that secret? The answer is it will take forever and ever. You know why? Because not even the devil himself, the brightest of us all, can resurrect. If the devil could resurrect, we'd have been having resurrections by the bucketful every day on this planet. He's stuck. There's only one life giver in this universe, one hand that holds the spark of life. And that hand was nailed to that cross. And that hand proclaimed over the rent sepulcher, I am the resurrection and the life. Yep. Humanly speaking, you understand this. Prolonged death, okay? Prolonged death, humanly speaking, is irreversible. Cannot be done. Humanly speaking. Death cannot be reversed if you keep Easter out of the story. But I tell you what, hallelujah today, if you introduce Jesus into the human saga, suddenly death becomes a sleep from which you can one day be awakened. What do you say? Jesus says, I can awaken you. And Jesus called that awakening the resurrection. That's what Jesus is trying to tell Mary and Martha on the way to Lazarus' tomb. Let's put those words back up on the screen. Jesus told her, you know, your brother's going to rise again. Yes, Martha said, when everyone else rises on resurrection day. No, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. You know, that isn't the first time in the Gospel of John. By the way, Jesus is just repeating himself. Back in John chapter 5, look at these words of Christ. And I assure you, That the time is coming. In fact, it is here when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. The Father has life in Himself. And He has granted His Son to have life in Himself. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son. And they will rise again. Hallelujah. Oh, and by the way, it's the very same promise. On the eve, it's Thursday night before his own brutal execution, when Jesus in John 14, 19 repeats the promise, because I li-. Read it out loud with me, will you? Because I live, you will live also. Listen, fellas, he says in that torchlight, I'm going to die. I'm going to die tomorrow. And you will die one day, but I want you to listen to me carefully. I am going to live again. And because I live again, you one day will also live again with me. He who believes in me, though he dies, 
yet shall he live. Write it down, ladies and gentlemen, on the walls of your heart. Easter is the glorious celebration of death's ultimate reversal. Hallelujah. I wish to conclude by relating to you the most unusual graveside service I have ever heard of in all my life. And it was conducted by a friend of mine, Samir Salmanovich, who was pastor of the Church of the Advent Hope in Upper East Side, Manhattan, in New York City. Samir told me the story himself. It was a graveside service, get this, it was a graveside service without a body or a casket and only a hole in the ground. With the grieving young widow and her two small children, Samir gathered beside the family and friends of young husband and father Michael Bach, who had been the chairman of their church board and who had been tragically killed on his first day at his brand new job in the World Trade Center on September 11. So full of life and hope and energy, Michael goes off to work that first morning to never come back again in this life. Days later, seeking some sort of closure for their unending grief, the family and the pastor gather by an empty graveside. Samir later told me that feeling so bereft of words to comfort the broken family, he on impulse halts his homily. And he turns to John 11:25 that we read just a moment ago. In the hearing of the heartbroken, he reads the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And then in the hush of that moment, wholly on impulse, Samir reached into his Bible and ripped out that onion skin page. And he held it up before the family and then he let it flutter down, down to the bottom of an empty grave. And then he spoke, Here in the grave that belongs to Michael, let us lay down the promise of Christ that one day from his unknown grave where Michael is now buried, there might yet rise forth the resurrection of this man who believed in Christ our Lord, Amen. No one, how could you? No one will ever, ever, ever forget that graveside service. And I've got to tell you, Samir cannot forget, for he preaches every week from a Bible that is missing one page. And in that missing page is the glorious truth about Easter and the ultimate reversal of death because, hallelujah, because Christ lives.